The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continue to look at God's Word, Matthew 5, in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We began the last Sunday of December. I introduced for you this, which I call the authentic Christian life. What we have here is not a New Testament set of commandments of here is the way good people behave themselves. Some people think of the Sermon on the Mount that way. That's not what it is. It's a description of the character and constitution, if you will, of a disciple of Jesus. Blessed are those who do this, who do this, who do this. One description after another tells what a disciple is, someone who mourns for his sin, who longs and hungers for God's blessing, who is merciful to others, and so on. Uh, Last time I wasn't here, but I believe you uh, you heard about the text of verses 11 and following, uh, where those who are this way, who are Christian disciples in this manner, are not received gladly by the world, but rather are rejected and persecuted. So now we go on, and I'm picking up uh, what Dr. Light would have brought you today if he had been here, and he would have done it with a week's study behind him, and rather than pulling old notes out of a drawer. So please give me Cut me a little slack on that, but uh, I bring you the same verses that Dr. Light was intending to read. Matthew 13, or 5, 13 through verse 16. Listen to God's word. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light, uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather on a stand where it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Lord, bless this reading of your word that we might better understand our new character in Jesus and let it so shine for your glory. Amen. Beginning in ancient centuries, specifically the third through the sixth centuries in Europe, a movement was underway and gained quite a bit of momentum, a movement by Christians to have an organized response to the secular world. People were asking themselves, how do I respond to this secular society which was not so friendly to who I am in Christ uh, based on what was dealt with the previous week here, that they reviled and persecuted Christians? Well, how do we respond to that, Christians asked. Well, a a great movement came about and built itself up that 
uh, involved a lot of money, a lot of building activity that was a Christian response to the secular world and its rejection. And that movement was the monastic movement, monasticism. The movement of serious, self-sacrificing, dedicated Christian believers, men and women alike, to go into societies behind protected walls where they said, well, this is where we need to devote ourselves to worship of God and to prayer, and we can't be too mingled with the world and all the terrible things that that people who don't know Christ are doing. We need to be protected. We need to be walled off, and we will best minister to the world by praying for it and conducting worship and devotion to our God. And so you maybe have some ideas of what monasticism meant and all the things, whole separate textbooks were uh, written, uh, the rule of St. Benedict, for example, of how to behave, how a Christian disciple in a monastic community behaves himself and herself. And of course, this usually involved celibacy, uh, resisting any involvement in in what people saw was the evil flesh and uh, demonized sexuality, which was wrong in and of itself, even demonized marriage to some extent, and instead insisted that a better way of life was the celibate way of life. Well, you can see how in the 20th and 21st centuries that has led to some really horrific things. Most of us would agree, I hope, that the monastic ideal was not necessarily the right ideal. In fact, it certainly is not supported by Jesus Christ when he speaks here to us in verses 13 through 16, when he speaks about an engagement with the society that seeks to meet the needs of society and be involved in it without being corrupted by it. Now, the first nine verses of Matthew 5, as my colleagues have been bringing it forth to you in these last weeks, I haven't heard all that they have to say, but I can see what the text says, and I know what they probably emphasize, is a telling through these Beatitudes of what a Christian is. Here's what a Christian is all about, how he acts, the attitudes he has, and all of that. Now we're moving a little bit in the, in the text of Matthew 5 to what a Christian does based on what he is or she is. How do we meet this worldly antagonism that comes against a disciple? Do we fight it? Do we pick up a sword and attack those who attack us, eye for eye, tooth for tooth? Or do we have a very different kind of response that verses 13 to 16 are trying to uh, give to us, which in the emphasis of Jesus is an advocacy of cultural penetration and engagement, not cultural withdrawal. In our text here, the Lord used two rather homespun analogies. Jesus had a wonderful gift, of course, to to use simple things to make profound points. And so he speaks about salt, which was something known to people, although they knew it to be primarily for a different use than you and I know, and light, and spoke about how these two things help us perhaps understand how to engage and be an influence upon the culture in which we live. Now, when I say that salt had a different use and a different meaning in that time, some of you know what I'm talking about. We think of it as just something that flavors 
our food, and we have a salt shaker and a pepper shaker on the table, and hopefully you don't use that salt shaker too generously because it's long-term it's not going to be good for you. Uh, we all need to keep the salt down in our food. I've been, I've been actually a little bit proud that that's one area where I'm good. I said to my wife not long ago, you know, you can hit me for the sweets and all that, but I leave that salt shaker pretty much alone other than one or two kinds of food that need it, but I pretty much leave it alone. But salt wasn't just a flavoring in the ancient world. It was something very different. It was the primary means of preserving food, especially meat, because there was no refrigeration. Try to imagine a world if you had to live in a world with no refrigeration at all. My wife and I are, as many of you know, we're living in a new home that we've only been in a matter of months, and so we have a brand new refrigerator, and this is unlike any refrigerator we've ever had before. It, it makes music. Uh, the water filter needs to be changed, as it did this past week, and, and so we hear music. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out if this thing plays the banjo or what all. It, it's a, quite a sophisticated device. But there were no refrigerators in the time of Jesus. How did you keep meat fresh? You salted it in a brine solution. You might smoke it also would be another way. But the primary use of salt was to preserve food to keep it from rotting. And, of course, the primary understanding of light is to give you illumination in the dark so you can see the path to walk or perhaps read or whatever you need to do. And the point is that both salt and light are different from their immediate environment, and therefore they cause change within their environment. Meat to be preserved, darkness to be illumined. And Jesus is saying, here's two analogies. Those are my only two points today. What Jesus said here, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. I'd like us just to consider what he's going for here in both of these things. First of all, you are the salt of the earth. You, you here addresses a Christian disciple, not just any old person in the world, a Christian disciple. You have within you, by the Spirit of God inhabiting you, having changed you, having transformed you, you have an ability to act as a preservative within your society, to hold back the rotting effect that happens to meat. I found a quote, one of the commentators quotes the ancient Greek scholar Plutarch. Plutarch, you may know if you studied classics, said once, meat is actually nothing but a dead body, and a dead body must rot. But when salt interacts with meat, it brings the refreshment of a new soul into dead tissue. That's how an ancient Greek scientist understood that salt actually brought something fresh. It restrained the decay that would otherwise be inevitable. Not flavoring, but literally prevention of decay and destruction. Salt was so important in the ancient world and so precious that if someone found a deposit of it or owned land with a deposit, you owned considerable wealth. And in fact, there were times and places where salt was so valuable that it would actually be given out in a, in a pouch as if it were coinage or money. You may not know that the 
word salary, through its Latin roots, actually comes from salt ration. The ration of salt that a Roman soldier might receive is his week's pay because he could take that into the marketplace and exchange it for food or goods or whatever it was he needed to have. It was the same as as gold. It was that valuable. Salted meat was meat that would last. It would not spoil, at least not for nearly as quickly as it would otherwise. Well, what's Jesus saying then? You are the preservative agent of a society that is bound to go bad, that will decay. That's its nature. It will decay. But you, because the Spirit of God is working in you and has given to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ, has made you a reflector of characteristics of God himself, and you are that which hold back some of the natural decay of this sinful human world. This is something we don't ever think about. You know, in in moves of people who want Christian politicians, Christian presidents, Christian senators, Christian Supreme Court judges, or so on, we, we seem to think that what we need is to have a society that is ruled by all Christians, and then we'll have the kingdom of God. And I think we need to adjust that a little bit to understand the more realistic expectation is we need to have, and in fact we do have, a society that has strategically placed Christian men and women all through the society, from the top levels of government on down through our courts to our our local citizenry to... Hey, the Philadelphia Eagles, folks. You checked out all the Christians on the Philadelphia Eagles? I had to get that in. If God's people are strategically placed, even a few, they make a difference. They make a difference. And it may not be, you know, we like to say, well, I wish wish we had, what is it, eight Supreme Court justices? I wish all eight would, would vote with godly wisdom and godly character. But listen, if four or five voted in that way, we have something of great value. And we should be ready to recognize that God has put his salty people in all levels of our society, from local government to police to just everything, school boards, you name it, teachers. How we thank God, I'm not going to get into an educational argument with how to educate your children here, but if your children are educated in public school, I, I don't know whether all of you, if you've always lived in Lancaster County, if you understand how blessed you are with the high possibility that in a public school you're going to have a Christian teacher. We have been all over this country, and let me tell you, that is not a high probability most of the places where we have been, and it is so often, at least, in Lancaster County. One or two or five or even a small coalition. I've rejoiced to to hear over the years of different groups of moms who have united to pray together for their elementary school where their children, whatever type of elementary school that was, Christian or uh, secular governmental school, whatever it is, Moms say, we're going to get together to pray for our school and pray for the teachers of our school by name and the children in it. Don't you think that's a restraining influence? We don't know 
what God restrains by those kinds of actions. All we're thinking about so often is look at the jails of our country. They're overflowing. We can't build prisons fast enough. Look at the corrupt politicians, the deceit, the sexual abuse, the immorality, and we're ready to say this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Of course it's wrong because society rots. That's why it's wrong. It's like meat left out laying on the ground and you know, maggots will be crawling upon it before long. It'll be as disgusting as anything could be. When left alone, hum- human society festers and decays. It does that because we're fundamentally sinful. But what a difference it can be when there are strategic men, women, small coalitions, small leadership cells, prayer cells of people who let their godly character be asserted. I just remind you, go up and down the Old Testament and see some of the premier examples like Joseph and Esther and Daniel who courageously asserted lives of prayer and obedience to God in the midst of societies that were absolutely against what they were all about. And what happened? Those societies said, why, look at this man, Daniel. He's, he's an excellent man. He's absolutely trustworthy. He's wise. He, he speaks with better wisdom than all our best counselors. We need to give him responsibility. Why, that, denom- that dynamic still goes on today, folks. And, you know, I, I doubt very much whether we remember. And here we need to brag a, bit, a little bit, I think, as Christians. Justifiably, we can brag and think and look back in Western civilization. As there have been major problems like plagues and disease of all kinds and poverty and child, uh, orphans and all these kinds of problems, Christians in the societies of Western Europe and America have responded to those things In coalitions, they've said, look, we need a hospital here. Look, we need a school here. And that school grew into a university. Oh, over here, there are children without parents. We need an orphanage. Over here, no one's caring for uh, for those with mental health problems. Let's have a special institution to help them. Who's opposing abortion? Who's opposing child labor? Who's opposing slavery? Why, who has done this? in the last hundreds of years in our civilization. For all the wrongs of Western civilization, folks, it's been the Christians who've been in the front lines as a minority calling for these things to happen. Take them away. And Western civilization is a rotting, stinking mess of decay. You check it out. Check out the history of how the universities started, who got them going, colleges in America, and so on. Now, Jesus is saying it's possible, he suggests here, that this essential character of the Holy Spirit working in us, changing us, could somehow be diluted or uh, polluted, let's say. You are the salt of the earth. If its salt loses its taste, how shall it be restored? He basically, his rhetorical question is, it can't. Now, he's not saying you're a Christian one day and then you've lost it. You're not a Christian. But he's saying there are those that might believe that they are in Christ, but it appears after a time that indeed uh, they are not. They're, They're not full of the Holy Spirit. They're not exerting the change of the Holy Spirit at all. And they're not being effective. 
What do you have to do with salt? doesn't do any good if you just keep it in a shaker. You've got to shake it out, rub it in, get it into the meat so it does the good that it is able to do. And it challenges us to think. How much good do a few of us do? How much good do some small cadres of believers do when they stand across the street from a Planned Parenthood unit and pray peacefully, legally, simply pray for God to act upon women who might walk in there for advice? Does God actually turn any people or change anything? He does. We know he does. These are ways in which we can be the salt of our society. Even in a family, you say, well, you're asking me to go out and take on a political role or something I'm not into. No. You want to be salt for Christ? Are you a mother? You already are. Are you a father? Are you a grandparent? Are you involved in any way with a school institution of any kind? Are you a teacher? Do you serve in local government? Do you vote? You are the salt of the earth. And the salt preserves the society when the Holy Spirit of God exerts the change that he's working in our lives and says to us, I call you to new values. I call you to different principles. I call you to march to another drummer against the current of the secular age, no matter that it's going to mock you, no matter that it's going to say you're a homophobe or some ridiculous title like that. And Jesus said right here, they're going to call us that. They're going to revile us. They're going to persecute us. That doesn't mean we stop. Expect it. But then ask yourself, what does someone constituted as I am by the Holy Spirit of God do in this society? Maybe it's getting yourself on the PTA, going to meetings and talking about the values of what's going on in your school. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. He expected a preserving, a resistance against the natural decay of our human sin. Secondly, you are the light of the world. Well, this is just an extension of what Christ himself was. Isaiah 9-2 talked about the people walking in darkness who, have, who would see a great light. That would be Christ. John 9-5 has Jesus calling himself the light of the world. I've been seeing different Christmas... I can't believe the Christmas catalogs. You know, it, it's amazing to me. There's, there's some genie somewhere in a master warehouse that tracks you when you move in America. We moved in mid-September. Um, you probably know that if you get catalogs like I get catalogs, that catalogs from the same company come twice a month, every, every month from September through December. Then they abruptly stop. Uh, we moved in mid-September, and boy, I'll tell you, those catalogs were at our door faster than the men who brought the furniture, and then left. Every other day, it seemed like L.L. Bean knew right where we were. Orvis knew. Land's End knew. They all knew. Hammaker Schlemmer knew where we were, and the catalogs came pouring in. Well, I kept seeing one thing in those catalogs. The point of this meandering illustration is a particular kind of flashlight that's out there today. It's a law enforcement flashlight. Some of you probably have these things. They're like 
12 to 18 inches long. I, they, I'm told police use them as a weapon of last resort. You can beat somebody over the head with it if you have to. But these things, you could turn them on and they see the beam two miles away. Wow, the batteries last forever. I thought, I've got to get myself one of those lights. How have I lived without one of those all this time? It would be so useful for me to beat burglars off or something. Well, Jesus is saying, you're the light that penetrates a dark society. A society dark in its ignorance, dark in the fact that it actually prefers darkness to light. Jesus said men loved darkness because their deeds are evil. They love the cover-up for no one to really see what they're doing. And you know what happens in nature if you turn over a rock and there are all these bugs and, you know, suddenly here's the sunlight shining. Bloom! Bugs go in all directions to get away from the exposure of the sun. Jesus is saying human beings are like that. They love darkness. They love concealment. They love to practice things that nobody can connect their their deeds and their motives, and, and they can maybe pretend to be something that they're not. But he told us, believers in him, in Philippians 2, Paul wrote, you are children of God in a depraved generation among whom you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out words of life. Do we shine in the darkness? Again, I, I, I'm not talking about you're mounting up some great national movement or something that, that has you as its president and chief spokesman. I'm talking about what you do in your everyday life, in your family, with your relatives, with your neighbors, with your co-workers. Are you light in their darkness? Maybe you say, I don't really know. But try to put yourself in the shoes of those other people and, and think about how they see you or what they hear you say and would they get light from you if they needed to see the way to walk or how to act differently? You know, we had a time near the time of the Reformation called the Enlightenment, again, in Europe. Some people think the Reformation is nothing but a branch of the Enlightenment. That isn't really true. But the Enlightenment was a time when modern science and literature and philosophy and economics and all kinds of fields sort of blossomed with knowledge and publishing. Now, some of that was wonderful. There were, there were works coming out of the Enlightenment that were great. But there was also a lot of attack upon the Scriptures and upon the truth of God. And it wasn't, you couldn't say when you stand back and look at the Enlightenment that just more knowledge and more study and more publishing all by itself was good because it wasn't always good. And what we have today is kind of the same thing. We have all this technology and information. Unbelievable. I still can't believe the information. Carol and I will be talking about something. She seems to have her iPad as an extension of her arm. It's with her all the time. And we'll, we'll be watching a TV show, and here's an actress, and so oh, that's Gloria somebody. And, uh, well, what's she been in? I know we've seen her. And Carol gives me her whole biography and everything she's ever, more than I ever wanted to know about her. Information, incredible, the information we can tap into, the data. But what is data without wisdom? What is data without the knowledge and the organizing principle of 
God, a righteous God to whom we owe account and from whom we receive salvation by his grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Technology does not bestow wisdom. If you don't know that, you better start thinking about it. Technology does not equal wisdom. The Word of God is wisdom. As Paul challenged in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, Where is the wise man of this age? Show me the scholar, Paul says. Where is the philosopher? And then he said, The world through its wisdom did not know God. But he was pleased through the foolishness of what is preached to save those who believe. You know, there are times when I feel almost swept away by the computer age, the digital age. I, I struggle mightily to keep up with the digital age. I am not a natural computer person. And there are times when I almost feel like what I do is being made obsolete by the digital age. But then I stop and think, no, wait a minute. First Corinthians 1. Data is not wisdom. Technology is not the life-transforming mind of God. I think that's what I've been called to preach and speak, not just data, not just technical information. When we stand for the truth of God, folks, in our homes, in our schools, in our families, in our work relationships, maybe you say, where, where would I show my saltiness? Where would I show the light of truth and integrity? Are you in a place of employment where two other people report to you for their work? Start showing them, because they're seeing it already, whether they're seeing the right thing or not. They're looking at you, and they're saying, is this a truthful person? Does this person say something, and I can believe it? I can take it to the bank? I can know that they have integrity? These things, which are the changes of the Christian's character, will be seen. And you see, it's a borrowed reflection when we talk about ourselves being light, you remember at the end of January, there was a one day or two there where there were several phenomena with the moon that were unusual, that made the moon unusually bright because we were closer to it. And I was reminded, you know, how different are the moon and the sun? Now, this is elementary astronomy. This is second grade astronomy or less. The sun, of course, is a, is a brilliant, blazing, self-generating light. The nuclear explosions that are going on there are making light. It needs no other light to help it out. The moon, however, is what? Fundamentally, it's a rock. It's a cold rock, folks. You couldn't live on it any more than you could live on the sun, but for very different reasons. The moon is a reflector of light from another source. So are we simply reflectors of the light of Jesus Christ. This text says, as it concludes, what's the goal? That people may see our good works, Christ in me, and what should they do? Glorify me who is on earth? No. Glorify my Father who is in heaven, who's the source of light and truth and excellency and righteousness and peace and all good things from God. I call you as Jesus calls us, to be the flavoring and also the preservation 
of the things that matter in our society because Christ has worked his change in you and also to be the light of Jesus, reflecting as it comes from us to be seen by others, to make us bold and confident as we live. Yes, we're kind of alone, and that can be isolating, and that can be even threatening. Yeah, I don't even want to go into... I spoke at the first service about Facebook. And you know how you can... You don't want to speak out on social media and stick out too much. You want to fade in, don't you? You want to blend in to what all your friends all those thousands of friends who know you and love you. You don't want to stick out. But what if you did stick out? What if a prevailing opinion is voiced on Facebook and you need to say, you know what, we need to think about this. You know what, I think the way that girl over there is being criticized is very unfair. Put yourself in her shoes, how she would feel. Young people, you know what I'm talking about. The Facebook social media world is a very, very humanistic and damaging world. It sets forth all kinds of ideals that are simply blend in, be like everybody else, be popular, get the most friends, and you'll be happy. Ha! You'll be happy. What about the people who go out and commit suicide after they've been bullied on social media? We have a chance to make a difference even in realms like that. Well, I need to wrap this up. First Peter 2.9 says this, folks, in a, in a concluding way. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. This is Christian people. Peter says you are a holy nation. You are a people belonging to God so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be people of light. Be people of salt and influence wherever God has put you and called you to be his child. Our Father, I ask that you challenge us. This age wants us to conform to itself. In every possible way, it wants to round off any, any edges that we might present to society. May we be mindful of the edges that cannot be sanded off, that must not be sanded off. May we be edgy people, perhaps making other people a little uncomfortable, if that's what truth does. Help us to be reflectors of the Lord Jesus Christ, for his honor and your praise. Amen.